from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, November 30th. The biggest political spectacle in Washington so far today was George Santos's 8 a.m. speech reaffirming that he will not resign despite all the fraud he's been charged with criminally, much made up about his biography that he's admitted to, and the related findings of the House Ethics Committee. Enough said about the Republican congressman from Queens and Long Island that a new book about him is called The Fabulist. The House will vote today or tomorrow, as I understand it, on whether to expel Santos from office and force a special election in his district that maybe dozens of Democrats and Republicans might enter. That's high stakes with the slim Republican majority in the House. At last report, Speaker Mike Johnson has not decided how he'll vote on Santos, saying he has, quote, real reservations about expulsion. And of course, Santos isn't the only or the biggest Republican fabulous the country has to worry about. That distinction, I think, would still go to Donald Trump, who still claims he won the 2020 election by a lot and is still successfully pranking most of Republican America to go along with him on that on a ride toward a possible end to American democracy as we know it. Much higher stakes than, say, Santos's claim that he was a volleyball star at Baruch College which he did not attend. Recent reports have Trump's former U.N. ambassador and former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley rising in the polls with the first Republican caucuses only six weeks away now in Iowa. But she is still nowhere close to the fabulist who's already been found guilty by a Manhattan judge of fabricating the worth of his real estate properties, not just his diploma status like the outer borough congressman down the road. And that's where we'll start today with Sarah Longwell, publisher of the conservative but anti-Trump news organization, The Bulwark, a political strategist who was CEO of the communications firm Longwell Partners and previously founder of the group Republican Voters Against Trump, among other things. Sarah, thanks for coming on today. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me. Can we start on George Santos? Do you have a headcount by any chance on whether they will successfully vote to expel him? I don't have a head count, but I do think that they will expel him, um, especially his colleagues from New York really have their knives out for him. Uh, you know, he is a massive distraction for these Republicans. And so uh, he's embarrassing them. And just like Kevin McCarthy really went after someone like Madison Cawthorn, who was also a big distraction for the Republicans and an embarrassment. Uh, I do think they want him gone. Part of what's funny about this story though, is that even if they do expel him, until he's convicted of a crime, he can maintain his floor privileges, which means he may just hang around there uh, and be a thorn in their side. Uh, if you've been following some of his comments since, um, you know, these uh, allegations came to light, he has been throwing really hard at some of his colleagues, accusing them of insider trading, of having affairs, claiming the media won't look at it because they're all too obsessed with George Santos. Uh, you know, the Republican uh, Congress has been such a circus, but he has been uh, quite the ringleader. And I think that people sort of can't wait for him to be gone. Um, but whether or not they really get rid of him uh, is yet to be seen. Mike, you know, Mike Johnson, the new speaker, has been interesting just because I think 
while everybody else is indicating they want him gone, he, in his new role, doesn't want to be seen as somebody expelling any member of Congress uh, right. while they have such a slim majority. And because they're going to have to hold a special election, uh, you know, they don't want to lose that seat. So it is dicey for him in his new role. Let me come back to Mike Johnson in a minute, and I'm going to ask you whether he may even have a point uh, in having reservations about expelling somebody before they're convicted, um, you know, even in a sort of pro-democracy context, uh, besides the interests of the Republican Party. But did you just say that even if Santos is expelled from Congress, he would still have floor privileges, meaning he could hang around there and make speeches and stuff? He can't make speeches, uh, I don't believe. But our bulwark congressional reporter, Joe Perticone, had just reported this. I saw it just before I came on and thought it was really funny. I suspect actually what it means is just you can be on the floor, uh, which is like a, something that former members of Congress are afforded. And really, it's only taken away from you if you are convicted in a court of law, um, which has not happened to him yet. And on the New York Republican colleagues uh, being the leaders in the drive to expel him. People like Anthony D'Esposito from another swing district on Long Island, Mike Lawler from a swing district just north of the city. Um, is, is this because their seats are in danger? These are real swing districts next year. And they want to look like they're tough <clears throat> on a miscreant Republican because it would help them uh, win reelection. I think that's part of it. I also just think it's close to home for them. Uh, obviously, the folks in New York are reporting on this endlessly. It's embarrassing for them. Uh, and also, when you're in these swing districts, these tend to be members who are more moderate, uh, The especially in New York. They kind of overperformed expectations. Uh, back in 2022, they sort of made up the majority for Congress. And so, yeah, they don't want the distraction and the embarrassment of George Santos. I will say um, this is sort of a point of personal order, but uh, I used to do a lot of work with um, the log cabin Republicans. I was actually their first female board chair. And they're the that's the, LGBT that's the group of gay Republicans. That's right. right the LGBT Republican Republican group. Yes. Exactly. And um, and so for a long time, we have wanted there to be more openly gay Republicans who got elected. George Santos was one of the first openly gay Republicans to be elected. Uh, and the fact that he has been such a colossal embarrassment uh, and fraud, uh, you know, the Republican Party. I mean, look, this has been the story of the Republican Party. They should be expelling or uh, showing disfavor to members who are deeply humiliating uh, for them. It's interesting, though. I mean, George Santos is just one of many. Uh, Lauren Boebert has also been a colossal embarrassment. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and generally, the voters in those districts, uh, though, like these candidates uh, and support them. I think George Santos, it's more like George Santos because he's in, um, I think, a swingier district. That is both a, makes it a tougher call for Republicans, yeah. uh, but also is one of the reasons um, they want him out because they want a better Republican there. Was there even a question, by the way, about whether George Santos is gay? Am I remembering this correctly? Did he claim to be married to a man and then nobody could find a marriage certificate or the man? Yeah, I mean, I haven't followed every twist and turn of the George Santos um, thing, but I do think there was like a weird. I think maybe he was married to a woman, actually. He I can't remember. He was previously married to a woman. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. 
So he may have even lied about being gay as he was running against a gay Democrat, uh, Robert Zimmerman, in that election and had, you know, maybe thought this was going to be that badge of honor that you just cited it as, you know, first openly gay elected uh, Republican. Uh, I don't know for sure. But I think I think of all the things he's lied about. Uh, I actually think the being gay one is probably true. <laughs> I don't. All right. <laughs> that one. I just just my own for my 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 own ability to uh, look at this. I think I think that one's probably true. If they do expel him, Sarah, here we go with a massively crowded and massively expensive set of primaries and then a general special election in Northeast Queens and part of Nassau County. Do you think it will matter in 2024 if that seat flips to Democratic? And I don't mean for the 2024 congressional elections, but to actual things that Congress does in 2024, because the Republicans would only have, what, a three vote majority in that scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, going into 2024, the rightest spot right now for Democrats is the fact that it looks like they could retake the House. And uh, I think that those seats in New York, I think what part of what happened in 2022, 2022 is a weird story of Democrats obviously focusing really hard on a lot of these election denying candidates in Congress and in governor's races and winning. And they seem to have missed what was happening in New York. And so I think that in general, they think there's a real opportunity to win those swing districts uh, back, especially considering how chaotic uh, it has been. I mean, um, even for like you mentioned before, people like Mike Lawler, uh, he's done his best to be an outspoken critic of the chaos. But voters in that district may say, you know, we we elected these Republicans as a corrective uh, on some of the things we were trying to correct among Democrats, uh, but no more. Um, and so I think that I think that New York is one of those places that is very likely to be a big part of the story in 2024 for winning back Congress for Democrats. What signal do you think it would send to the American people if enough Republicans do vote to expel Santos for his lies while they refused to expel Trump from office after his impeachment following January 6th? An insurrection based on Trump whipping them into a frenzy over his fabulous lies. Well, I think it's just going to say something that we've come to understand very well, which is that there's one set of rules for most other people and there's a different set of rules for Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump has the ability, you know, you say it's a lie. I know it's a lie. Uh, But when you listen to Republicans and I hold focus groups just about every week with voters across the political spectrum, but I focus on uh, you know, Republicans and Trump voters. And the vast majority of them believe that there was something wrong with the 2020 election. And they don't think that, um, you know, a majority of them don't believe that uh, Trump lost the 2020 election. And so um, it was actually it's one of the big problems that Republicans have had to confront as they try to run against Donald Trump in one of these in a in a presidential primary is that for them to make the case that Donald Trump is politically weak, that he will lose, uh, or to say that he lost last time and he's a political loser, is to butt up against a lie that voters believe. So like you are challenging their reality when you say that, because they don't believe that Donald Trump lost the last election. And um, they don't think that he's a liar. Uh, In fact, one of the strangest things that voters say in the focus groups all the time is they say, look, I know 
Donald Trump lies, but he also tells the truth. And what they mean, what they mean is that they know sometimes he's being a fabulous. They know he's embellishing or exaggerating, but they believe he's talking to them like a real person and not like a politician. They believe that he is being straight with them uh, and that the rest of it is him kind of being funny or over the top. They don't see the lies as pernicious or eroding to democracy or some of the ways that we might talk about it. Uh, they just see that as part of his um, nature as a showman uh, and therefore find it utterly forgivable. Nikki Haley's been getting some press lately as the rising Trump alternative. We haven't played this stunningly and harshly honest moment on the show yet of Haley from the last Republican debate. And listeners, hold your ears if your sensibilities are fragile. This starts after Vivek Ramaswamy had been accused of being soft on China because he uses the China-linked social media platform TikTok, and he addresses Nikki Haley. Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer. So... Sarah, do you think Haley had in mind calling Ramaswamy that word coming into the debate, or did she spontaneously react to having her daughter brought into it? I think both. I think that Nikki Haley is aware that one of the things that has really uh, elevated her campaign is that while uh, Vivek Ramaswamy has, uh, there's sort of a segment of the Republican voters who find him very interesting and, and attractive as a candidate, that there is a that there are a lot more people who find him repugnant and recoil. And she has become their vessel on the stage for kind of smacking him upside the head. And um, and and were they booing him or were they booing her in that? Loud I think audience? they were booing him. Yeah, uh, I think I, I I take that. I think that a big part of her rise in the polls has been uh, and the reason that people are taking notice of her is that she is a saying something people want said on the stage, which is that that guy's a jerk. Um, but also it makes her look, um, I think, kind of tough in the way that she wants to look tough. Uh, I think that she is actually at her worst when she delivers some of the canned uh, sort of quasi feminist pop lines like mm -hmm. my heels are a weapon. Um, I think that lands terribly. But I think when she and the other thing, look, these Republican voters today, they want a performance. They want it to be exciting. Donald Trump has created this desire for them. They want to see a fighter. I mean, the time, number of times I have heard people directly say they want a fighter in their candidates. And this is now true, I think, across the political spectrum. Um, and I think that's what she's showing in those moments. And voters react to that. Let me spotlight one other thing about Haley that could go beyond whether she gets the nomination and get your take. In that same recent Republican debate, she repeated that she is pro-life, as she puts it, on abortion, but... But when it comes to the federal law, which is what's being debated here, be honest, it's going to take 60 
Senate votes, a majority of the House, and a president to sign it. So no, we haven't had 60 Senate votes in over 100 years. We might have 45 pro-life senators. So no Republican president can ban abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban these state laws. So let's find consensus. Let's agree on what, how we can ban late-term abortions. Let's make sure we encourage adoptions and good quality adoptions. Let's make sure we make contraception accessible. Let's make sure that none of these state laws put a woman in jail or give her the death penalty for getting an abortion. Let's focus on how to save as many babies as we can and support as many moms as we can and stop Thank the you, judgment. Ambassador. We don't need to divide America over this issue anymore. Now, Sarah, I'm not sure many people could even understand what that attempt at nuance boils down to in terms of what she would do as president on this issue that's been hurting Republicans lately. Do you understand it? I do. Um, I actually, I thought it was quite, I thought it was was clear. I mean, she's, she's saying that they were not going to have the votes uh, at the federal level. And so let's find a compromise and a way forward. And I think that she is where most of the American people are. And I also think this has been helping her uh, because I one of the things that is so interesting about uh, the two time Trump voters is how many of them are. Uh, I'm going to say pro-choice, uh, but it's actually a little bit of an unfair binary because a lot of what times what the voters say is, well, I'm pro-life, but I believe in a woman's right to choose. And I remember the first time I heard it, I laughed a little bit because I saw them in conflict, but they're not really. So many people say it, that they're sort of personally pro-life. They want a, a culture that is pro-life, but also they do not want to get in between women and their doctors, uh, especially you hear this a lot from older uh, Republican women uh, who sort of came up expecting this law to be there. People do not like that it was repealed. It's why when you're in Ohio or um, or when a, a any election really comes down to abortion, you're seeing it it sort of win with with runaway numbers uh, because there are still a lot of sort of pro-choice Republicans. And so I think that she is doing something that needed to be done a lot sooner, which is kind of prove that she could be a very strong general election candidate because um, there was a period of time where I think electability really, really was on voters' minds. I think the problem is, the problem is that, so much polling shows Donald Trump uh, beating Joe Biden that people also think Trump is perfectly electable. They also think that Joe Biden is so catastrophically weak because they listen to sort of this Republican media ecosystem. I mean, also the mainstream would, would also probably argue that Joe Biden's coming in a little weak. But in terms of on the right, people think that Joe Biden is they talk about him as sort of barely sentient. And so as a result, uh, they think that Trump could win. And if they had their druthers, Right. It, they want Trump uh, or they want somebody like Trump if they can get him. Uh, they've also been sold kind of these establishment candidates on the basis of electability for a really long time and are told that people like Donald Trump can't win. And when he did win in 2016, they really felt like they just didn't have to keep compromising on these establishment candidates. And so, again, I think that there is like if you look at the polling, She's down. I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but in her home state, she's losing to Trump by at least 30 percentage points. Wow. Um, and she'd have to win her own state to have a path uh, forward. If you look at the Super Tuesday states, um, you know, Trump is clearing 50, 60 percent in many of them. So could she overperform in Iowa? Could she really uh, pull off a surprise in, in New Hampshire? Uh, she could. But to win the nomination, she will have to beat Trump in South Carolina, her home state. And uh, that's a tough, tough order. And that state comes 
early, so we should know pretty early in 2024 uh, if there is anybody who can challenge Trump in the Republican primaries. Of course, things could change later on if he's convicted of a crime, and there are lots of wild cards. But, yep, Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire are obviously going to be big things. Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark and CEO of the communications firm Longwell Partners. Good talk, Sarah. Thank you very much. Please keep coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. Thank you.